0: will will always overcome skill, except in the cases of where one man's skill is so far superior that his will is never really tested. That's so true. You have to take a moment and digest that. Teddy, will will always overcome skill, except in the circumstances when one man's skill is so far superior that his will is not tested. And it's so true. Uh, The example, Teddy, give me an example. All right. Michael Jordan playing basketball with a 15-year-old kid. The 15-year-old kid has a great, 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 great will. Great will. Or the 18-year-old kid, great will. But the skill level's too far superior to ever test Michael Jordan's will. Focus,
1: focus,
0: focus. I know I can't. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks. Come from a different cloth. Y'all will get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went the rock park. Now we eat it from state to state. We scrape the plate. I put my eggs in a basket. Took a leap of faith. I took a chance. Now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests. Now let's
1: bring math. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Matt Labrie here, your host of the top 1% globally ranks podcast, Decoding Success. You're rocking with us on episode number 253. And today, to say the least, we are joined by an absolute living legend. We are joined by our friend Teddy Atlas the famed and prized boxing trainer to 18 world champions, most notably Iron Mike Tyson, ESPN commentator, podcast host of The Fight with Teddy Atlas. I can go on for days about Teddy's resume, but he's taking his time out of his day to add value to us here on Decoding Success. Really excited to have Teddy, but I want to point a couple things out. This episode genuinely reminded me of the time I sat down with my grandfather, who at the time was 89, is now 91, God bless and knock on wood. With that being said, these episodes aligned for because the responses, the answers from the interviewees are in story form, and I think it's a really beautiful thing. So for instance, Teddy is sharing really raw and vulnerable stories about his life in numerous different ways. He tells us stories about legacy, fatherhood, mentorship, choices, circumstances, regret, relationships. the list goes on. There are so many stories, and they led to laughs, joy, tears, incredible, incredible stories that are just filled with raw emotion, and it's such a beautiful thing. We're really excited to have you here for this one. I'm going to urge you to make sure that you're sharing it with someone in your life. They don't need to be someone that loves boxing, but I want you to listen to this episode with intention. Listen for the golden nuggets that are embedded within these stories, and when something clicks, you're going to say to yourself, you know what? I know someone that needs to hear this. That someone may be you, but there also may be someone else in your life, so I'm going to urge you and put that in the forefront of your mind to make sure that you're sharing this with someone, and without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Teddy Atlas. Teddy, you are a living legend. Thank you so much for this opportunity to host you, to amplify your message, to spread the good word. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I
0: I appreciate the words. I don't know about legend, but I appreciate that, especially the living part that I'm still living. I appreciate that part to the compliment. That's the most important part that I am here.
1: That is most definitely a very important thing. I'm really curious if you don't view yourself as a legend with all that you've been able to accomplish thus far. Talk to me about that.
0: No, people are good enough to say it and I hear it a lot and it never gets old. And, you know, I always appreciate the hell out of it. But, you know, I'm just a person that, that cares. Maybe you know somebody once told me when you do drop dead, what would you like to be put on your as a, some kind of epitaph, if, if if at all? And I said just that he cared. Mm-hmm. And so when people, I guess when people use that phrase, maybe it means that I cared about what I did in that way. That would be my easiest, most sincere way of answering that question—a difficult question, you know. That that's all. And but again, I all I think of myself, if anything, as far as in a complimentary status would be I've tried to be the best I can be. I've tried to care about everything I do and care about other people. I've always tried to be a professional, you know. Had a couple of good mentors or examples, fatherly type examples, one a more of a surrogate father, the other one a real father. My father. Doctor Atlas. And, you know, the other one was model. And the funny thing about that is they both were professionals. They both behaved and performed as professionals. One articulated how to do it. One articulated what it was being a professional, gave a description of it to me on a regular basis and explained it. And the other one never did. That was my real father. He just lived it. He just did it through example, you know, and it's a funny thing. That's the best teacher of all, I guess, is just living around somebody who gives you that example, who lives that way. And Tus used to say certain things, there's this thing called osmosis, we laugh, but where you absorb something. And I think there's some truth to that because you absorb life lessons, you absorb example. And if I absorb some good ones from my father towards being a professional that led to some of the compliments I get now later in my life, that's what I appreciate and that's what I would attribute it to because his definition of a professional, what you were striving for was a person who did what had to be done every moment, every day, every second, no matter how he felt, no matter what was going on in his personal life, his private life, his even his professional life, obviously, no matter any of those things that may have been going on, like like even now with these earpods popping out of my head, you still do You're supposed to do, and you never wholly compromise, influenced, or compromised by the outer, the peripheral things, the things that might be going on for yourself or around you. That's a profession. You get the job done no matter what no matter what. Basically, there could be fire going on around you and you're still getting the job done. God forbid, personal things could have went wrong with sickness, with illness. You get the job done. And nothing, basically, what he was saying was anything short of that, you're making an excuse. And that's pretty strong. That's powerful. That's heavy. And like, when you really contemplated it's heavy because you say "Well, well there's certain things in life I don't think should be necessarily identified as excuses but that's kind of how it was put forward to me and you know what I watched a man live it that way I watched a man and my father who later in life when his heart was skipping a beat he put something under his tongue I didn't know what it was but I was a little kid it was a little white thing it was a nitroglycerin pill I didn't understand what that was, but it was so he could keep doing it, so he could see his patients, so he could do his job, so he could live up to his commitment, so he could be a professional. He, he got surgery in the 70s. What did he do? He snuck away, basically, to Philadelphia to get the surgery. I shouldn't say snuck away, but he it almost seemed that way. But he went away while my mother was on vacation so she wouldn't worry she wouldn't even know about it and (laughs) so that's selflessness right and he gets it done and obviously it's the right place to get it done down in philadelphia was the right doctors he gets the surgery done he comes back and the next day, he's in his office taking care of patients. The only difference was he had to lay down on a, basically on a couch to see them because he couldn't stand upright because the pain was so severe. I mean, is that extreme? Is that crazy? Is that called what you want to call it? But it's being a professional. And so I lived in that atmosphere, in that environment, both with Customado talking about it and demanding it every day for eight years when I lived up there with him in Catskill. And my father just living it and showing it. Matter of fact, I was up in Catskill training fighters. It was funny. And I called my father to just to say hello. And there was no answer. And I was, you know, I found out to an uncle that he had gotten a surgery and he was keeping it a secret. I, so I immediately got in a car drove two and a half hours from Catskill, came down to Staten Island, New York, and I went immediately to his office. And I see a line of patients. He had a very big practice. Nothing unusual to wait five hours to see Dr. Atlas. Why? Well, number one, he was a very good doctor. He got the job done. He took care of you. He was a great diagnostic doctor. He knew what was wrong. But also because he took care of the patients back in those days, especially, that nobody took care of because they, they couldn't pay. There was no HMOs, really, for the most part. You know, and a lot of them, he had to go through the paperwork of whatever it was back then. There was one insurance for people that obviously were poorer and that didn't have the resources, didn't have the, I think it was Medicare maybe, or I don't know which one it was. I always get confused, Medicaid, Medicare. But a lot of doctors just didn't want to take those patients and go through that. So my father wound up with with all the patients and the ones that obviously, like I said, that fell through the cracks of life, that didn't have the means to really, you know, pay. And so he took care of them. So like I said, it it could be five hours to wait. He, He had so many patients. And I remember walking in the hallway, but the thing that was different was everyone was in a hallway. And I was like, what the heck's going on here? They're supposed to be sitting in a, in a waiting room and they're all standing in a hallway. So I get past everyone and I look in the last room because he had a couple of, you know, rooms where you go from room to room to, you know, for obviously for. For different things, as he might put you in that room while you're waiting, then he's taking care of somebody in another, you know, in another, you know, room. So I get all the way to the last room, and as I'm getting to the last room, I'm worried because I realize that that's the room that really has never been used for examining patients. It's, It's a room that has a couch on it, and so I'm a little concerned. Why are we going to this room? I get all the way down there and I get my answer. He's laying on a couch and patients are coming up to him and they're bending down if they have to. He's propping up a little bit and and he's examining him. And I'm just like, you know, wow, that's, there he is. That's, that's Dr. Atlas. And, you know, so, and I learned a lot about human nature too. In that because here were these patients and this might be difficult for some people to absorb, but I just say things the way I feel and hopefully people can interpret it the way that I mean it to be interpreted. But these are good people. They're sick. I get it. And he's taking care of them. But there's a level of selfishness because they're not and that in an excusable way. Selfishness is usually never excusable, but in an excusable way because they're sick. Their children are sick, whoever, and they need to get better. And Dr. Atlas gets them better, but they're not recognizing that the man is sick. And I was thinking, wow, later on it hit me. I was like, Wow, the human condition is really something else, isn't it? Isn't it? Because they didn't want to see he was sick. They just, all they knew is what they needed. They needed Dr. Atlas. Didn't matter that he was laying on a couch as white as a sheet. Nobody even said, maybe there was some, I shouldn't say that because that's not fair. But from what I saw, nobody even said, doc, how are you feeling? You okay? Because they needed what they needed. And, you know, and again, I hope I explained it right. And I'm not knocking people. I'm just saying the human condition, it's amazing because we, sometimes we just seek what we need and they were seeking what they needed and nothing else really was, they were oblivious to everything else. And at the end of the day, I locked the door. See, my father had an office house, but they didn't mean nothing because he didn't stop till the last patient came in the door. So his office hours could say from 1 o'clock to 5. It didn't matter. People were walking in at 6, 5.30, He wasn't going to say, you can't come in. He was taking care. Half the patients he didn't charge. He was giving them free medicine. So I was like, I got to lock the door. So I went and I locked the door. And, you know, otherwise, you know, we would have been there longer. Yeah. And I remember the, the nurse telling me, you know, your dad doesn't lock the door. <laughs> I said, You know, and I'm a junior. You know, I'm Teddy Atlas Jr. And um, I'm like, well, this Teddy Atlas locks the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he locks the door. And It's funny though. I, uh, anyway, that's just. I'm sorry that I gave you a long. No, no, uh, no don't be sorry, um, Teddy. Answer to a question that you started to show with, but for me, that was my journey. I'm proud of it because I think that, again, getting back to why people are so complimentary to me, if there's any reason and true merit to it, it's established through that. What I just explained through that upbringing.
1: Alright ladies and gents, let me hop in here real quick. Fellas, first and foremost, we need to do better, and ladies, if you're listening to this right now, you can most definitely help us out. We're so accustomed to getting fly, the haircut, the grooming, the brushing of the teeth, but one thing we neglect? Our skincare routine as men. To that point, I'm excited to introduce you to Tiege Hanley, a men's skincare company that helps guys just like me, you, your husband, fiancé, brother, boyfriend, uncle, grandfather, and everyone in between maintain a healthy skincare routine by making the process uncomplicated. Now I got down to the basics to kick things off with their level 1 set system. It's simply the easiest way to get started, and I figured I was going to add something into my routine. I want it to be easy so that I stay consistent and get results long-lasting. It came with my face wash, so I ditched that bar of soap, an exfoliating scrub, moisturizer for the morning and the night as well. Especially going into those winter months, it's so important to have that moisturizer. So here's the deal. I've been consistent for about a month now. I'm getting compliments on how my skin has a glow, and although I never shot for that, it's pretty nice to hear even as a guy. And on top of that i noticed that the skin underneath my beard is flake free like there are no flakes underneath my beard anymore and my skin just feels so rich but before i got started with tige i said to myself i want to make sure that this is the way to go so after doing my research i stumbled upon thousands upon thousands of five-star reviews online and i said okay we're going for it the best part is tige is a sponsor of today's episode So they're offering all of you an incredible deal. All you have to do is go to tige.com forward slash decoding success and you'll get 30% off your first box plus a free gift. That's t-i-e-g-e.com forward slash decoding success for an amazing deal for each and every one of you that are listening to this. Make it easy. Go into the show notes, click that link, and you'll be directed right there. Well, that's a beautiful thing. And I'm going to refer to you here as John Stockton and myself as the mailman, because this is a perfect segue. I wanted to get deep on this episode. One thing, you know, just doing my research from knowing your work, from knowing your personal story from an outsider's perspective, at least, I know how much your father has meant to you. It was very evident. I believe you were on my buddy Patrick Bet David's show. And visibly, I saw you wearing your emotion, which I found to be very beautiful. You were wearing the emotion as you were speaking. About your father, and you know, just for the people that are listening, obviously you alluded to the fact that Doctor Atlas would treat people, and you know, kind of put it on the arm, right? Like he, you know, some people he wouldn't charge, some people didn't have the coverage or the care. But even beyond that, he put a lot of people before himself, right? He he built numerous hospitals on Staten Island, I believe. You know, you you had mentioned things of that nature. I'm curious to learn what did you ultimately take away from your father, right? Like, what, what was the ultimate thing? You talk about being a professional, but there are a lot of other factors that went into the story that you just talked about. Like, if there was one thing that you took away from your father, what what really was that?
0: We can go further. We can go further. What we, does that mean? Uh, if I use an analogy of a house and in the house, there's X amount of rooms. Say there's a, it's a large house and there's say 30 rooms. But because of the comfort of where we live and how we live and what's what's most convenient, we might only use 10 of those rooms. We might use 15 of those rooms. Maybe we use 20. That's a lot. But in life, we don't use all the rooms. We don't visit all the rooms. We don't get to rooms in our capacity, within our reach, to get to within ourselves. We I make the announcement that we are that house. You can visit more rooms than yourself. You only visit an X amount of rooms in your house and there's more rooms to visit. There's always more rooms to visit. And it gets to a point where there's those rooms that are full of dust and that never get visited, you know, and my father visited those rooms. My father always found a way to go further, you know, like when he was, when he had that surgery, he still found a way to go further, to not stop, to do more, you know, and, um, he was at a young point in his career, he was, he cared about, he saw the dilemma of not proper health care back in those days that certain patients got better hospitalization care, f- frankly than others, so you could stop there. What could you do? There's nothing you do. You do the best you can do. No. he went further. He built a hospital. he built right. two at the end, but to make it to make it really accurate, the first one was Sunnyside Hospital sat Island before the Verita Bridge when sat down was smaller and uh, more rural and but the need was still the same. And he it only had 20 beds in it he built a hospital with 20 beds but 20 more people now could get good hospital care that couldn't get it and he absorbed the cost you know there were certain patients in there that had proper insurance had money whatever and obviously that helped pay the bills but the rest of it he took as you use the definition the old timers used to use you know so he took it on the arm he absorbed it so he he went further and then when that hospital that lasted about 22 years somewhere in that neighborhood. And when that hospital got torn down because the city had built the Verrazano Bridge and the highway was gonna be where that hospital was, they had to buy it from him. The city bought it, tore it down. He could, again, Didn't have to visit no more rooms. Could have said, hey, I did my part. I had a hospital for 22 years. It's over. No. He went and built another hospital. This time, Doctor's Hospital on Staten Island on Taji Street, which is, I think it lasted 35 years. It's a school now. And somebody was good enough to name part of the school the Atlas Academy in his name. People sometimes don't remember people. They should, but they don't. But the former president of Staten Island, Shani Otto at the time, was a good man. He wasn't your typical politician. I'm sorry if I'm hurting somebody's feelings, but again, the truth should come out. And sometimes there's only one way for it to come out, straightforward. And But this politician, for me, he wasn't a politician. He was a civil servant. That's what I called him. I used to say, you're a civil servant. You're not a politician. You take your job serious. Whoa, you better be careful. Better be careful, not the people (laughs) you're hanging out (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because he might—they might, might want to freaking eliminate you because you're taking this stuff very serious, Jimmy. So you know, so he went and named it the Atlas guy, which obviously I'm I'm appreciative of. But again, he, my father at that time, he put together sixty other doctors, sixty, so it wasn't just him. Obviously, it was a big hospital or a much bigger hospital, and he got it done. You got it done. And then, and then, and just learning to go beyond that word convenience. How's that? Learning how to go past that freaking word convenience because it's a freaking word. Is it truth or is it a lie? <laughs> is it truth or is it an excuse? Most of the time, I've found through my journey at this point in my life that it's a freaking excuse. Right. Well, <laughs> why, do, why, why don't why don't we know.
1: go past it though? Why why don't we go past convenience? Why don't we go past comfort? Some people comfort? do. Some Agreed. people do. Some people do
0: because it's not convenient. Because it's not comfortable because it's scary sometimes. That's why. Because human nature, there's two sides to human nature. The first side, the shallow side, is to do what's convenient, to be comfortable. Hey, there's nothing wrong with striving to be a millionaire and get comfortable. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. You know, there's some people that don't even strive to get that far. There's some people that their comfort levels, and I'm not knocking them. Everyone's comfort level is, is at a different height. I get it. A different level, I get it, but it surpasses just your position in life, it goes to other things, your responsibilities. You know, I I'll spit it right out. We got too many fatherless kids, I have a right to say it. Teddy, why do you have a right to say that? Well, because I run a charity foundation named the Dr. Atlas Foundation, it doesn't make me better or worse than anybody else. There's plenty of good people out there running foundations that are probably better than me, but. I run a Dr. Atlas Foundation for 20, obviously, for reason to remember him. Okay. And what do we do? We help the people that fall through the cracks right. and. We do social programs where if a family has a sick child, they have to go out of state. They got to fly out of state. That program's not available here. We fly them out. We pay for them. We put them up in a the hotel. If they need a wheelchair. Bang. Muscular he does not good organization. Don't get me wrong. But they don't get them a wheel. Why, Teddy? Why don't they get it? They make millions of dollars. Because they do not. Their monies that they make go to research. But how much? Uh, 5%, 4%, 6%. I don't know. Where's the rest go, Ted? Administrative costs. They're a big on We're not that big. We're not that huge. So we don't have that problem. So our money don't go to administrative costs. Our money goes to get a wheelchair. Why? Because you know what? The research is more important than what I do. I know that because I want to be out of business. So I want them to get the research done eventually, hopefully. But in the meantime, while it's happening, these people are not better. They're sick. They need quality of life help. They need immediate, they need a wheelchair. That's what they need right now. And most of this, he says, no, we don't do that. So they come to the Dr. Atlas. We do it. We need a wheelchair ramp. Guess what? Not covered by insurance. Not medical. Not medical. Not covered. Guess what? That 35, how do you know that number so fast? Because we do a lot of wheelchair ramp. <laughs> That's how I know. So we put the wheelchair ramp up whatever it is. Uh, insurance. kid, a poor kid gets surgery. Maybe the surgery to save his life, God willing, from cancer. Maybe the surgery costs 300000 Wow. And, and the insurance pays it. But then there's a charge of $1,500 a month for the medicine he has to sit take to continue to be well. That's not covered. Really? Mm. Yeah, really. We pay for it. So, we we do these things, and then we go into the social programs. This is where I think I have a right to say what I said to begin this conversation, where we go into these at-risk schools. They're called Title I schools in New York City. So basically, what that means, if you're going to get to, really, to it, it means families making less than 35000 a year, okay? Right. Real poverty. Poverty brings real problems. I understand. I get it. So with that, one of the problems is no Fathers, that's one of the problems. I say it again. People, some people. Oh, Teddy, you. Bra-. No, I don't have to be careful. No fathers. Listen, I simplify things. I know it's not simple all the time, but sometimes it is a little more simple than we make it. Part of our big problem in this country, and guess what? Wake up, people. We have big problems in this country. Big problem. Part of the problems is part the family unit. No fathers. That's part of the problem. No fathers. Oh, Teddy, poverty. There's no fathers okay whatever cut it any way you want to cut it that's a big part of it big part and why can i say something because i'm there because i know because i do these social programs we call them the dr atlas incentive programs where we go into these title one schools we let the principals know we know let the guidance counselors know we let them all know and we tell the kids listen I ain't asking for A's. I ain't asking for B's. I'm being a little bit more sensible than that. I'm not jumping into all that stuff right away. Well, you know what I'm asking for? I'm asking for you, the kids, to care about who you are because they stop caring about who they are. That's the freaking Alexa. That's the medicine that my father would have gave somebody to fix them. That's the medicine. Get them to care about themselves. These kids stop caring about themselves because of their environment, because everything I'm trying to talk about right here. And... So I go into schools, I say, hey, here's the message. Start caring about who you are, how you live every day, how you conduct yourself, how you behave every day, how you represent yourself every day. I know you got problems. I'm not, I I get it. I get it. I'm not disputing that. But you have, here's the thing, you have a power that you're not using. What's that power? The power to make a choice of how you're going to behave every day, no matter what's going on, like, like we've been talking about for the last half hour. You have the choice. My father had a choice of how he behaved every day. You have a choice of how you behave every freaking day, no matter what's going on. It's your choice. It ain't the situation's choice. It ain't the kid across you who's telling you to get a gun and go do this or, or, or shoot up or whatever. It ain't his choice. It's your choice until it's not your choice, until you give it up. So that's my lesson. Use that power. Use that choice, please, and make a decision to behave better, to conduct yourself better, to be better, to care about who you are every time you get out of your house every day. And if you do that, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to drop off 200 tickets to a Knicks game and Yankees game, a Nets game, a Knicks game, depending on the season, obviously. I'm going to supply the buses, and your guidance counselors, you your, your your teachers, they're going to have the ability now to put you on a list over the next marking period, whatever it is, six weeks, seven weeks, whatever. And if you make that list, you're going to that game. Just give them a reason. And what does it come down to? I'm giving them the thing that a father would normally have given them. That's it. That's why I can talk about this. Because I'm there and I see and I understand the reality of it. And I understand anything short of that, we're lying to ourselves. We're lying about the elephant in the room. We're lying. We got our heads up, you know where. And it shouldn't be up, you know where. It shouldn't be because it's too too important. It's too important. As the great Jack Newfield used to say, who I miss every day, he was a great writer and he was a great worker for The Underdog. He was a great writer, but more importantly, he wrote for The Underdog and I was very close to him. He's gone. And he used to say, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) I love that. I love that. that. That was Jack Newfield.
1: It makes me curious because I know that there were moments in your upbringing where you and, you know, for for lack of better words here, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You know, you were desiring a... Sort of recognition or an attention from your father that you might not have been getting because he was just taking care of everyone. He, he was really out there taking care of everyone, and that led you. That led you to do things that would put you in front of him to an extent, right? Like maybe it was a tough love, you know. Whether that be the four hundred stitches from from the blade, or whether that be from the crowbar, or whatever the case may be. I'm curious. I mean, what, what am I looking to, to ask here? It really comes down to. That absence in a sense. And I know that's what you were just alluding to. How does it all connect, right? Because you, I mean, maybe it's life that connects it. You were able to find cuss to an extent who was able to provide a different sense of fatherhood, obviously not from a biological perspective. How does that all connect for you?
0: Well, I think what you just talked about, it starts with this. You don't have to be poor to be poor.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: You don't have to be missing material things, whatever, money, whatever, whatever material things okay to be without nothing you know because i was the son of a doctor i'm not supposed to have no problems you know i have what i need what i want more than i need let's be honest right here's the funny thing i lived up on a hill called grimes hill good area nice houses down the hill was a place called stapleton projects tough area no houses well a few less houses different houses right i wound up going down the hill when everybody seemed to want to go up the hill, and I went down the hill to find something I don't know what you instinctively innately whatever desperately whatever, but that I was searching for acceptance i don't know family camaraderie, but Teddy, you had a great family, you had yeah, to follow as a doctor. My father left early in the morning, dropped us off at school very early in the morning, dropped us off at school, and didn't come home till late at night because he was taking care of patients he my father besides going to the hospital he had office hours and he did house calls to his 80s he was doing them some of them for free because people could not get out they were so poor some of them they couldn't get out to even get to a doctor and you know they they were sick they were you know the public transportation wasn't available they weren't taking a cab that's for sure and um so he did house calls till he was 80 years old and he was never around and then it hit me he was listen i never had a hero I didn't even know what the freak, the definition of hero. I didn't even know what the word meant. I love Mickey Mantle. I love Willie Mays. I love Muhammad Ali. I really admired Joe Frazier as I was getting older and all that. But I can't tell you any of those guys were my hero. Almost with Muhammad Ali. Almost. But I couldn't really say that. I didn't. But my father was. But I didn't know that either. All I knew was, that's the guy. That's all these guys in one. That's him. That's the guy. And... I want to be that guy. I want to be around that guy. And that guy wasn't around. And I saw him around for everybody, everybody taking care of everyone. It made me feel good. And then it's weird because I guess it's, it's explainable. But as I got older, it didn't feel as good selfishness, right? Whatever. But yeah, but as I got older, all of a sudden what was so great and made me feel so good, all of a sudden I was, I don't know, I was mad and he wasn't around. So in my infinite wisdom, which I make a joke about, because obviously I was an idiot, I figure who gets Dr. Atlas's attention all the time? The broken, the fractured, the injured, the sick, the messed up. He even helped all the drug addicts in the neighborhoods. That used to come to him. That normally, especially back then, nobody helped the drug addicts. Believe me, he helped them. He had his own way of helping people. Because he understood they needed help. And there was different ways to help somebody. But you didn't just say no. And so now, you know, they get them, I don't get them. So I'll go to a place, I'll I'll start doing things that I get them. I'll get myself messed up. Now look, did uh, did I freaking say that to myself? No, that I to be really some lonely, me. I you know <laughs> more than is wrong with me already, right? But I that's what it led to. So I searched. I went on a search. And I and plus I wanted, you know, camaraderie, family, I don't know, whatever. Someone to share certain things with and I found it with these People that were hanging out on the street corner down on Broad and Court and Stapleton, where there'd be a hundred people hanging out on a summer night. And I got friendly, you know, with well, some of them I went to school with. I got friendly, you know, at a young, you know, around 16, 17, whatever. Yeah, seventeen, and um, a little earlier maybe. And I'm with them now. I felt like I'm I'm in the right place, and I and they were good people. They were good people, but they had a different life, and there were different dangers and challenges for them there you know and but i had somebody i had something to to kind of fill that space and i didn't understand it the way i do now but i was living it and it was drawing me was pulling me it was making sense to me in in the way that it was and be careful you don't get what you look for or you ask for right that old saying that's why i got this right but eventually you know i got to the right place like cause tomorrow used to say teddy don't matter how long it takes to, to get a champion to be a champion, as long as you get there. <laughs> as long as you get there. Archie Moore took him to his 30s to get there. One of the greatest light heavyweights of all time, 300 fights, 140 knockouts, whatever. The Old Mongoose. Well, of, you got to be pretty good if your nickname is the Old Mongoose. Uh, uh, one of the great greatest of all time, but he didn't get his title shot till he was 35, whatever it was, somewhere in that area. And he fought till he was 46, 47, 48, 45, whatever. Yeah. As long as you get there. And thank God I got there. Thank God I got there. And that was my journey. Everyone's got a different journey. Absolutely. You know, you don't know what it is. Everyone's got a different journey. And for me, that was, that was always my journey. I didn't know it, but that was, that was going to be, you know, it's a funny thing. I mean, it's not funny, but it tells you something. My father was the real deal. My father was, there was, he didn't show emotion when there was no room for emotion. He was, he was around death too much to show emotion. He was. I remember one day I was about nine, 10 years old and I'm upstairs and I hear the door open. Boom. I'm there at the top of the steps. He comes in. He goes, what are you doing up? I said, how come you're out so late? And I'm like, (laughs) he got a kick out of it. He was like, go to bed. And I was like, where were you? Why didn't you come home earlier? He said, I was in the hospital. I said, what were you doing? He said, I was taking care of somebody. He must, and I still remember It's weird. I said, certain things I can't remember, though, but I remember certain things. And I said, and the guy was obviously sick. So I said, he must be better now because he's got you. And, you know, and my father, without blinking, my father immediately says, This is my father. This explains a lot about my father. He says, No. I said, What do you mean? Because I said, He's going to get better. He goes, No, he's going to die. Now, a lot of people say you shouldn't say that to a 10-year-old kid. I don't say that. Not for this 10-year-old, because I lived around this man, a doctor. I know what he did for a living. And I couldn't understand it. I couldn't comprehend it. I said, he can't die. He's got you. He goes, oh, no, he's going to die. And uh, I said, what a 10-year-old would say. I said, then why did you stay there? Why are you there putting all this time in Then selfishness, whatever, but also sensible? Why are you there if the guy's going to die? And this stayed with me forever. His one line answer. He looked right at me and said, because you don't give up on life. It's a beautiful um, thing. Yeah. And so when I – it was funny. When I – Finally fell to the bottom, and I was on the streets doing all kinds of whatever, and some of it led to this. I felt like I'm in the hospital, and they rushed me, the police, you know, every, all that stuff. They rushed me to the hospital. They they thought I might die. I mean, it, was, it missed my jugular vein by, like, you know, whatever, less than over a quarter of an inch. If it hit that, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. Right, right, now, right, right. Obviously. and But I was bleeding out pretty bad. And so I remember hearing one cop saying, well, he might not make it, something, whatever. And I remember I was like semi-conscious. I wasn't in a panic. I was in a very cold place. And I was like, get called Dr. Pat in the ambulance with the police sitting on either side of me and a EMS person, whatever. And I'm telling him, I'm giving them instructions. Call Dr. Atlas, he'll take care of it. And they're like, son, oh no, I actually said, take me to Dr.'s Hospital. And they're like, we're not near Dr.'s Hospital. We're taking you to the closest hospital. We have no time to waste. I'm like, all right, then call Dr. Atlas and he'll meet us there. They were good, though. They, They didn't, you know, they were trying to keep me calm. I look back at it, you know, they were human and they were the right people to have that job, I guess. Not everybody is. So I get to the hospital and they're rushing me in, banging, going up the steps, rushing me in. And there's a whole bunch of doctors. And it was like, you know, I'm just seeing people. And I'm saying, I'm insulting one of them. I don't know it. I didn't mean to. But I'm like, get Dr. Atlas. He's the best. And they had brought a surgeon in. They had made a call when they got the call to bring in a plastic surgeon, an oriental doctor. I think I still remember his name. I'm not sure. It was like something like Dr. Chin or Dr. Lin. But anyway, I found out afterwards. But so, and he's there, you know, I guess he was one of them. And I'm saying, listen, I don't want to make you feel bad. Like I'm saying these crazy things, but he's better. And I remember, I don't know if it was the doctor who did the surgery, but one of them said, we know your father. He's the best. He's great, but we can't get him. And we promise we're going to do a good job. And then the lights went out. That was it. And then what I was waiting for, right? Why I went through this, I guess. I'm in the room, you know, hours later, right? Dark. And there's a curtain all the way around me, right? I come to, there's all this stuff in my arms. And, you know, I'm groggy, obviously. Actually, I'm laying there. I'm laying there. I guess I'm just starting. To, I don't know if I came to yet, but all of a sudden, I must have been semi-conscious, I guess, because all of a sudden a hand moves inside the curtain. And I'm I'm like aware of it. And the weird thing was... I was waiting for it. The hand moves, the curtain comes in, and then the body comes in. And like, I'm just sitting there and I'm happy. And all of a sudden, I feel this big hand. I never realized how big my father's hands were. When he was dying, he was in the hospital, doctor's hospital, the hospital that he built. And I was with him every day till he died. When he was dying, Jack Newfield, the great Jack Newfield, came to do a story on him. And it was he put in one of the front pages of the New York Post that a legend has passed. A medical saint, he called him. I wanted him to be there. I wanted my father to get recognition. He never looked for recognition. He, He stayed away from it. He got mad if you even talked about anything along those lines. He got mad. Like, don't talk that way. We didn't do anything special here. So, because he was doing his job, I guess. So now, I remember when he was dying and Jack Newfield came to see him in the hospital. He was in... At that point, he was um was just about gone. You know, he was in a coma. And he's laying there. Jack comes in the room. And the first thing Jack says, the great Jack Newfield says, he's got to fight his hands. And I never realized it. I looked at his hands. He had big hands. And I said, whoa, yeah, he does. He has fighter's fight his hands. And that day, now going back, you know, all those years, I realized, I was thinking of when he put this all of a sudden, he put his hand on me and he just traced the scar. The Well, it, it was covered, of course, with, was all sutures and it was covered with whatever, you know, but he traced it with his hand and I could feel his hand. It felt good. It felt safe. Just, it felt right, you know, it felt right. And I feel his hand. And then as soon as he's finished, because it don't take long for Dr. Atlas to tabulate. And immediately he said, he looks at me. He said, they did a good job. He says, you're going to have a scar the rest of your life. And he walked out. Wow. Now, a lot of people hear that story and say, what a cold bastard. No, nah, the opposite, really. I mean, you you guys aren't getting the point then. You know what I mean? He was who he is. And he was true to who he is. He wasn't going to BS me and say anything, you know, other than the truth. And um, he was right. I have a scar for the rest of my life. But, um, you know, and he was right. They did a good job. <laughs> But when I say be careful, you don't get what you, what you wish for. I'm just saying I got him. He, I finally got him. It was like I was, I got him. Here he is. And you know, it, it wasn't, but it was part of my growth. It was part of my getting it Absolutely. and you know, and putting it together, you know, to the point that I needed to put it together.
1: 100%. Teddy, I, I only have you for four more minutes. I wish I had you the rest of the day because I, I could ask you a million and one more questions. I'll wrap it up with this question here. You've given us a ton of advice, right? Whether you learned that from Cuss, whether you learned that from Dr. Atlas, whether you learned it from your own life. I'm curious to learn, if you achieved everything you want in this lifetime, you lived to whatever year you want to live, but you could only be remembered for one piece of advice, what would that be?
0: You ask good questions, but you know, there's a tough one because there's a lot of pieces out there my friend there's a lot of people out there in my life i won't take four minutes but give me a moment i know my (laughs) clock i know i know the clock is ticking i i'm trying to attach it to a moment to a person because i have so many moments so many people i remember one and this is this is a simple one it's attached to me and it's it's on a little bit on the selfish side because obviously it helped me in my life but it was genuine it was sincere I remember after Michael Moore. and listen, there's ones that are more important than this. I'll I say it frankly, but this one is just easier to say. And it's good. It's important, but it's a little easier. But there are some others that are probably more important. But I might have to use more than my four minutes I have on the clock. Michael Moore had just got knocked out by George Foreman. We had won a heavyweight title before that fight against the great event, the Holyfield. We lost it to the great George Foreman. He was winning every second of every round, and he got caught in the 10th round, and that was it. And then he was talking, he was going to retire. He was only 25, 26 years old, whatever it was. And his managers, everybody said, you have to talk to him. And my feeling was, I'm going to let him do what he wants to do. I'm not going to ever force somebody, to that would be wrong, and it wouldn't work, but it would be wrong to force somebody to fight life, so we could, I can make more money, so he can make more, whatever. Uh, they are justifiable reasons, but he's got to want to do it. And- So I decided on my own, because it's always got to be on your own. It's always got to come to you. So I decided, he was living in Boca Raton, Florida at the time. He had just bought a house. I decided to fly down on my own and um, talk to him, spend the night, whatever. And so I did. And he's right away. He put up his defense, but I recognized it. Don't try to talk to me about fighting again. I'm not here to talk about that. What are you here for then? (laughs) Because he wanted me to talk about that. But I played this psychology game on him and I saw he had put weight on already. So I said, I'm here to eat pizza. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, really? Yeah, we can order a pizza. You know, because usually I was fighting with him about the diet. And now I'm like, I'm here to eat pizza and, you know, whatever it means, get fat. So I'm not going to bother you about that stuff. But then we got to that stuff. And I said to him, listen, Michael, I got the right moment. I said, if you don't want to fight again, I'm with you. You accomplish something, you're in the history books. And most people will never accomplish. You're a heavyweight champ of the world. Pretty significant. Pretty damn good. Pretty damn great. You're special. You're always going to have that. And if you don't want to do it no more, that's good. That's fine. I just want to make sure that two years from now, five years from now, one year from now, you don't wake up one day and say, Jesus, I wanted to do it. I don't want that phone call. Quite frankly, for me or for you. That's all I'm saying, Michael. That's all I'm saying. If it's over, it's over. But if it's not over, you have to visit that in your heart right now for the next. Take your time. But you have to come to that and know. And you'll know. You'll know. And that was the advice. That was my advice. And he called me up a week later. When are we going to camp? (laughs) (laughs) I want to get this title back. All right. We'll figure it out. We'll get it going. I love that. And you know know what he did? Nothing's easy, you know. Even if it does turn out to be storybook, still doesn't mean it's easy. He had to fight Axel Schultz, who had beaten George Foreman. I thought Foreman won, but he had beaten George Foreman for the title the linear title, the real title, the one that we had lost. Axel so Schultz was a German. And we had to go to Germany and fight him in a soccer stadium with 40,000, 35,000, whatever the number was, the Germans. It was, a, you know, it wasn't a, our atmosphere. It was their atmosphere. Obviously, it wasn't friendly for us. We had to go there to get back the title. And, um, and we did. And he did. He did. He did. And... Um, Got back the title. It was good. It was right. It was right.
1: That's beautiful. And, and, I love that. That's I love again.
0: That. The great Jack Newfield. I love him. I dig about him. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it.
1: I love that, Teddy. I wish I could ask you a million and one more questions because I have them, but I know I need to let you go. If if schedules weren't a thing, I would try and squeeze more time out of you here. But I want to I make mean, sure I'm respecting.
0: No, it's up to you. If you want to go a little longer, I I recognize. No, seriously. I without making it corny, but I recognize decent people and I'm talking to a decent person so you go further for those people i mean you i mean it's i think it's what you're supposed to do so I appreciate you want to go a little
1: further do you have anything on your calendar that would interfere? Am I interfering with anything coming up next? Well, the next day or two, I do. But, but uh, <laughs> I won't go that long. I promise. You know, but,
0: you know, I do. I do have a few things. For the next, but no, we could go a little further.
1: I want to ask you we- something that, that gets me really curious. I, I mean, I've I played baseball and basketball my whole life. Baseball was my primary sport. Basketball, you know, my secondary sport. I just I was good at it because I'm tall and athletic. I never boxed. I think I might have done like one or two boxing trainings in, in like the park. During the pandemic, because the gyms weren't open. I'm really curious to learn about, or I guess from your perspective, teaching a a fighter to control their emotions and feelings while in the ring. Now, the reason I ask that is because I've seen people in street fights where they got hit in the face and then went into a full blown rage. And in the process of going into full blown rage, they got their ass kicked, right? Because, you know, they, they lost everything else they knew right? I'm curious, what do you teach someone to control their feelings and control their emotions while in that ring? First
0: of all, it's a good question. Actually, it's the right question. It's important for life, not just for fights, for any aspect of life to be successful that you have to control your emotions, no matter what it is. If you're a doctor, for example, right? And then you go and you open up a child who's been hit by a car and you find something that You wish you didn't find that there's bleeding in areas that you didn't think there was bleeding. And what do you do now? Knowing that you also have a child the same age at home, who's your child? Mm -hmm. And there's emotions, right? So now it's not just... So the medical part and the part about the stuff you learned in medical school. Now it's about just what you touched on. Great thing you touched on. It's about we're all in a fight. It doesn't have to be with gloves on. We're all in a fight. What do you do the moment of the fight? That for me, that's life. Everything is a fight. You know, what are you fighting for? That's the only difference. I and mean, in the moment of your fight, how do you handle yourself? And here's a doctor, he opens up to his kid and there's bleeding all right there. Do you stay composed and remember your medical lessons, so to speak, uh, your anatomy, everything else and, you know, figure it out or do you just fall apart? Really, same thing with the fight as you're explaining, but it doesn't have to be per se in the ring. It could be whatever the fight is, whatever it is, you're in a classroom, you're a teacher and... All of a sudden, you know, you wish the kids were respectful and you wish the kids were, you know, going along with the agenda. But all of a sudden, you got a problem. You got chaos. What do you do? Do you remain a teacher and figure it out as a teacher should figure it out? Or do you fall apart? What do you do? What? It's not easy. And that's that's the most important secret to success in the world is how do you compose your emotions when that moment comes, here's the answer for me, because that's the most important thing that I am charged with, so to speak. That is my responsibility to improve, to make a fighter a top fighter, to get that part done. Yeah, to teach the X's and O's and the, you know the proper fundamentals, all that. Of course, of course. But that's really what it comes. That's the essence of it. That's the heart of it. And the first part of it is, where have they been? Where have you been? Where have they been in life? What has been their degree of discipline in life? What has been their degree of challenge in life, their degree of controversy in life, their degree of confrontation in life? What have they dealt with? Up to that point, things that you might think are minuscule, things that you might think that that don't show up on a radar screen, that don't compute. Into the It computes, baby. It does. It computes. What a, I remember, one kid, he was so calm for for his lack of experience or his amount of experience. I was like, "Tell me about your life." And he was like, he couldn't believe it. He was like, most people ask me about you know the fights and this and about tournaments and. You're asking me about my life. Yeah, tell me about your life. I'm just curious. Well, when I was eight years old, you know, whatever, necessarily being exactly accurate. But when I'm eight years old, nine years old, 10, whatever, my uh, father left us or he died or this, and my mother was sick, and I had to basically become the father. Aha! I had to take care of my sister, my little brother, my other little brother, my, oh, I got it. I got the answer. I got the answer. You've already been in this atmosphere. You've already been developing. You didn't know it. Being able to think in unthinkable terms, times, being calm in an uncommon environment. You've already been here. You're going to be okay. No wonder you're you're the right student for this, and and you are shown this kind of you know capacity to improve so fast. And that's I got my answer. And. That's the answer to you, is that practice, put yourself in as many positions as you can where normally you look to jettison out of them. Mm. They're the right one. Don't jettison out of them. They're the ones you're going to learn. They're the ones that are going to form you. They're the ones you're going to need. They're the ones you're going to need to form this kind of ability to be responsible, to be in control, to be dependable. Those are such important assets. That's what you're touching about. Those are important assets. And we as people recognize it. You know, we recognize the fluorescent talents: so fast. Speed, power, you know, flash, sizzle. you know, whoa, whoa. You know, I, they're important. But the most important ones are the quiet ones. Dependability, consistency, loyalty. Be loyal. Teddy, how's that going to help me be a better fighter? Takes strength to be loyal, brother. Takes strength to be loyal. Takes courage to be loyal. Takes discipline to be loyal. Oh, I get it. The greatest compliment I've gotten from fighters, I won't name their names, but a bunch of them have come back to me years later. Not all, you know, whatever. Not all the greatest terms in the world that we left with whatever, but every one of them, this is the thing that I felt good about. Every one of them, I'm thinking right now, I remember saying one thing to me when they saw me years later, whatever. You made me a better man. You made me a better person. I don't know if I really did, but to, I was trying to because I know I'm helping my own course. Right. Because I know by doing that, I'm making a better fighter, a stronger fighter, a more reliable fighter.
1: One thing I've heard you talk about, Teddy, that I absolutely love is I believe you framed it as willpower trumping skills. So my question to you is, how do you develop will? Is it developable? First, first of
0: all, I'm going to give you an exact quote from Custom Auto. I've come up with a lot of my own quotes over the years, my own thoughts from where you know, I learned them and I tabulated my own thoughts together and put it together and reorganized things. But I always give credit to the people, if if there's credit to be given, that came up with an original. And the original, which I will give credit to right now, Custom Auto, my mentor, was Teddy Atlas. He used to tell me at least a couple times a week, Teddy, do not forget will will always overcome skill, except in the cases of where one man's skill is so far superior that his will is never really tested. That's so true. You have to take a moment and digest that. Teddy, will will always overcome skill, except in the circumstances when one man's skill is so far superior that his will is not tested. And that's so true. Uh, The example, Teddy, give me an example all right, Michael Jordan playing basketball with a 15-year-old kid. The 15-year-old kid has a great, 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 great will. Great will. Or the 18-year-old kid, great will. But the skill level is too far superior to ever test Michael Jordan's will. So it doesn't apply. But then he said, when you get into comparable circumstances, which is everyday life. You get to a certain level. You get to a certain level in the NBA. You get to a certain level in the NFL, in MLB, in boxing, doctors, lawyers, whatever. You get to a certain level. The skill levels are fairly comparable. You get to that level. Now it's a matter of whose will is stronger. In whatever form you want to put it, in a form in a courtroom, that their their will, their... The ability to keep themselves together, to not panic—that's will. That's all forms of will. Doesn't have to be again. It doesn't have to be when you're bleeding and you've been buzzed or you've been dropped and you're getting up and you got. It's in all different forms and situations. So you know when those talents are fairly comparable, now it does come down. It does come down to whose will is superior. Mike Tyson, listen, people out there, the haters out there, you always got haters, unfortunately. Right away, they're big fans, you know, and they're, they're saying, oh, Teddy, you're saying that because, you know, sour grapes or this or that. No, I'm not. I There's a certain part of me that has a love for Mike Tyson, actually, still. But, you know, it is where it is in a certain part of me. But that doesn't keep me from understanding what I understand and feel, the truths of it. And there were situations where there was a the Holyfield fight, where there was the Pastor Douglas fight. People will. Put all the things in there. I don't care about those. I care about the things that my 50 years in this business in boxing have taught me. Where I can rely on them, I can trust. I know. I've been there. I understand. And other people before me have understood. Where in those fights, Tyson's skill, the Tyson's skill level was probably higher. His power, his speed was probably higher than those guys but their will was stronger. Buster Douglas, yeah, there was a lot of nights that his will was not strong. But that night, that night, the night months after his mother died, who he loved his beloved mother, he felt he couldn't be hurt no more than, than the, the death of his mother. He There was a reason something catalytic happened, something crystallized at that moment in his life that made a guy that had never been strong, he was always skillful, but he had never been strong mentally made him strong for that night. Made right. him strong for that. Just came together that made him strong because of his mother, and he was strong that night. He had a will that night, and the man with the stronger will won that night. Mm. You could argue to the cows come home, but there's no getting around it. There's no getting around it, and so that you know that there's great truth to that. That you know there is nothing more powerful than a man's will. Nothing. I mean, I mean, look at it through the history of life, the history of this country. Really, how how we how we. Got our independence way back then in this country. We were not the best army. We oh. were not the best equipped. We didn't have the most weapons. But there's no doubt we had the stronger will. There's no doubt. Will will overcome skill unless one man's skill is so far superior. Teddy, I'm curious.
1: Yeah, it, it leads me to ask this. I mean... Is going through life, I mean, is the relationship with Mike never reconcilable?
0: No, Mike, listen, Mike, to his credit, whatever, whatever the reason was, years ago, I can't remember exactly when, but it was up in Verona, New York at the t- Turning Stone Casino. I was, you know, I was doing the Friday Night Fights, obviously the commentator for all those years for ESPN. I'm at Ringside commentating, doing the color work at the fights. And, Mike Tyson, maybe a year earlier, had become a promoter. It didn't last uh, for too long, but it was Iron Mike promotion. Somebody put the money up, used his name. So that show, that particular show that night was his show, the Mike Tyson production. And he was there, obviously. And in the middle of me calling fights, I all of a sudden get a heads up from my producer, Teddy. I wanna throw you off, but it did it could have thrown me off. But I was knowing how to be a pro. he said, I don't wanna throw you off or get you into anything. But um Mike Tyson's on his way over there to to talk to you, like, Thanks for not throwing me off. Yeah, I mean, why didn't you just tell me there's like a uh, hand grenade next to me? That okay. wouldn't throw me off either. I mean, so it was, you know, I'm just joking with it, but that's kind of how it happened. And, uh, like, what's he coming over here for? And, um, he was coming over to apologize for what happened many, 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 many years at a different time in his life, my life, many years ago. And to his credit, he wanted to apologize. And he came over, I got up, you know, it was on the air, the whole, everybody saw it and, um, it was live. And I turned around and here he is. And he said, I'm sorry. And, uh, and he said can i shake your hand i said i put my hand out and then he hugged me so um you know so for what it's worth i you always you know you got to be truthful about the whole thing sounds beautiful but we really haven't talked since but he's in a good place you know what i'm glad i'm glad i'm glad he's in a good place from everything you can see and hear about it like i said it's not like we're We've become, we become we meet for dinner every week. <laughs> right, but, sure. But but we had that moment. We had that day to his credit, not to my credit, to his credit. We had that, that moment and I it was a it was a good moment.
1: Yeah. You know the reason time. I the reason I asked that Teddy is because I think the world would be a better place with more love. You know, obviously I I wasn't there for the situation and nor do we even need to talk about it. But I I say to myself, I think the world needs more love. Teddy Atlas, Mike Tyson, two of the greats in the space, and even beyond the space. Like I just look at it and and I say, I, I wish And I'm not even, I'm using you two as reference. I just wish that we could find ways to come together more and work on things together and bring about our greatness in in different ways, which is exactly why I asked. But I'm glad to hear that, you know, an apology was made and that's a beautiful thing, right? That's a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, I agree. Listen, I agree with your your sentiment, what you just said. I'm going to add one word to it. We as a people, the world, could use more understanding.
1: Understanding, great word. Yeah, I would use. I would throw
0: that word in. Love is a greater word, but I would throw in there understanding. Take time to understand each other.
1: Absolutely.
0: You might. You might walk away a better person after you do that. You might. You just might. And the world might become a little better because of it. 100%.
1: 100%. 100%. 100%. So, Teddy, you gave me an extra 23 minutes. I'm going to squeeze one last question out of you here. This might be the hardest question. I'm not trying to make these questions difficult, but I'm just curious, right? I want to understand Teddy Atlas. I want to get under the hood, and we've done a whole lot of that thus far. So I'm going to end it with this question. What's a question that you wish more people would ask you, and how would you answer it?
0: Yeah, well, you, you all find it hard questions. So whether you're trying or not, you're doing a damn good job coming up with <laughs> hard. (laughs) questions for me and for people in general i would hope and wish that people that sometimes just would be a little less prone to jump to conclusions okay and in life generally and maybe to ask that's your question maybe take a minute to do two things to ask and while they're asking be committed to listening Mm -hmm. sometimes we ask but we don't listen reflex action ask but do we really listen? Especially if we don't get the answer we want. So I guess my question my to people what I would ask is to ask is just maybe ask me why. Instead of just all the stuff that, that you know, this this and we go you know, the all the tumultuous stuff that can be there, the collateral stuff that can be there that we've heard we've we've been bugged up, Cush used to use that. These guys are bugged up in their head. <laughs> That's a good word, old word. You never hear that. Bugged up, you know. They're they're jammed up with all this stuff. I would just ask. Yeah, I get jammed up too. I I would just ask. Yeah, I get jammed up. I get bugged up. I would just ask, and I'd be willing to give that. I would just ask somebody to ask me why, and really be prepared to hear it, and have the care to hear it, to ask it, and genuinely. Can of the hearing. That's it.
1: I love that. I love that. In fact, we actually just had Chris Voss on the show yesterday. Chris is a, or he previously was an FBI negotiator, and that was one of the topics we talked about the the art of developing the muscle of truly learning how to listen, not listening to respond but literally knowing how to listen. So, Teddy, I, I just want to firstly say thank you again for the opportunity to host you. To end on that note, I'm going to make sure that in the show notes of this episode, people will be able to find your socials, websites, your podcast, The Fight, which I know you have a lot going on. We were talking about that before we started recording. Congratulations on all of the success there. Anything else that we should be putting in the show notes for people? If I'm uh,
0: able to be that, um, you know, asking, and to, I would if it's not, too much. I would appreciate it. First of all, I appreciate all that, but I do have these instructional videos with Dynamic Striking It's a website, and I actually have done these, some I never thought I'd do, but I've done these instructional videos, fight videos, and on all aspects of boxing, like it breaks down, one of them is the peek style, Mike Tyson, Floyd Patterson style, you know, one of them is inside fighting, one of them is body punching, one of, you know, the art of body punching, the art of feints, the different ways to throw a jab, you know, so there's 15 of them. And awesome. so it's dynamicstriking.com. So if people look at that site and maybe they like that, I just did three more that haven't been out yet. It takes about a month to produce them, but I think they're interesting. I did all the instructional ones that I felt were responsible to do should be covered. So I didn't want to do any more because I didn't think that it made sense. So I, um, we, they wanted to keep going because there's been a good response. So we did three mental ones where I just talked to the audience, which I think are going to be good, where there, one of them is about kind of what we've been talking about: how to become mentally tougher, mm. as, a, as a person, as, as, you know, as just a civilian, if you will, and then as a fighter. So two for that, one for each, and then they left it up to me. they said, "Teddy, what else do you want to do?" And I did one on bullying, I think it's important, on anti-bullying, how, what, it, what to do if you're bullied, and to break down, if you will, where bullies. Why a bully is a bully? his weaknesses to explain to the guy being bullied the kid being bullied that you're not the weak one he is and explain why so i i appreciate you asking i appreciate you giving me that opportunity to, to you know to go out and say that and then i also have uh believe it or not i feel like embarrassed saying like i'm talking about myself but you asked so i opened the door opened up i go in there uh, there's a clothing company a young guy in london and the company is called box raw he's a former fighter good good person and he was a former amateur fighter he made this company with you know obviously the connection to boxing with athletic wear and it's box raw and he came up with a line called the teddy atlas 36 line Nice. And it's out there. It's box law. And I'll tell you real quick, the genesis of 36, where did that come from? 36 minutes to make life fair. That's mm-hmm. one of my sayings where, you know, one time he heard me one time doing an interview with a writer. And the writer said, for Teddy Atlas, what does boxing mean? And that was like a loaded question. Was, you know, so many things. And for some reason, I was in a good space at that moment. And I just said, you know what? Boxing means for me that no matter where you came from, No matter who your parents were, you know, no matter what your nationality, your race, your creed, your religion, no matter what you've had or didn't have in life, no matter how in your mind life hasn't treated you fair, no matter all of that, on one given night, if you care enough, if you train hard enough, if your will is strong enough, you can get in the ring and you can make life fair in 36 minutes. Mm -hmm. And the guy said, "I got to get Teddy to do a thirty-six line," and so that's where it came from. We got that. It's a, it's a good product. It's it's good clothes, and it's anyway. And um, and then the other thing is, I have a book, and it's been turned into an audio book, and um. And you already mentioned a podcast, The Fight with Teddy Atlas. It's on all the platforms, you know, on whether it's YouTube or whether it's uh, the Apple Tunes and whatever that stuff is, you know, iTunes. It's on all that. And the other thing, like I said, is uh, I had a book that we did years ago, and its it was published by Collins. It's an honest book, what can I tell you? And it's... Besides the book, it's turned the last year, we turned it into an audio book. So that's out there too. The, the name is Atlas. And then it's got a subtitle, "Subtitle From the Streets to the Ring, A Son's Journey to Become a Man. That subtitle, I, I wanted that subtitle on there because it was important to me.
1: I love that. Teddy, I appreciate all of this. I'm going to make sure all of the links are in the show notes of this episode. But again, expressing gratitude for all that you've brought here to the show, all of the work that you put out into the world. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. I appreciate, as I said, I appreciate. Um, I appreciate decent people, good people. So, thank you.
1: And there you have it, everyone. You just tuned into episode number two hundred and fifty-three, right here on the Decoding Success Podcast, featuring the living legend, our friend Teddy Atlas. Now, as mentioned in the beginning of this episode, jam-packed with stories, stories about fatherhood, stories about mentorship, stories about legacy, stories about regrets, stories about going the extra mile. The list goes on. A plethora of stories. So, one thing that I want to urge you to do is make sure that you're going back to re-listen to this episode. Maybe take notes. I want you to grasp, fully grasp, every single golden nugget that's within these stories, and there's a ton of them. So shout out to Teddy for hopping on here and adding all of this value. You can check him out in the show notes of this episode. All of the fun stuff that we talked about, websites, projects, socials, all of that good stuff is in the show notes of this episode. Make sure that you're sharing this with the people in your life, and until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.